Welcome to Inside Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting, a global strategy consultancy that helps business leaders seize competitive advantage and amplify growth. Inside Exchange is our forum dedicated to the free, open, and unbiased exchange of the insights and ideas that are driving business into the future. We exchange insights with the brightest minds of the day, the most daring innovators, and the doers who are right now rebuilding the world around us. Recent partnerships between alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverage producers have bridged across traditional category lines. Traditionally, there was a divide between non-alcoholic beverage producers dipping their toes in alcoholic beverages and vice versa. But that barrier has begun to erode and largely break down over the past one to two years due to shifts in consumer demand. Today, we discuss how the blurring of beverage categories is forcing leading beverage manufacturers to evolve their business models. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Wilson, Partner and Managing Director, and I lead the food and beverage practice for LEK Consulting in North America. I'm joined by a couple of colleagues of mine, Claire Davies and Charlie Mead. Claire, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, everyone. Um, so I'm Claire Davies. I'm a, a partner and managing director in LEK's consumer practice. And uh, I spend most of my time in the food and beverage space, particularly focus on beverages. Hey, everyone. And I'm Charlie Mead. I'm a senior manager in our New York office and a member of our consumer and food and beverage practices. Recent partnerships between alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverage producers have really bridged the traditional category lines. And we're seeing a real blurring of them. Claire, could you shed some light on what's going on here? Yeah, thanks, Rob. I mean, look, beverage companies are always looking for growth, right? And so they're always managing their portfolios, their product offerings to, to capitalize on the you know, evolving consumer demand. And, and as you said in your intro, traditionally, we've seen very clear swim lanes between um, alcoholic producers and non-alcoholic beverage producers. Um, but that barrier, as you mentioned, has really begun to erode and break down over the last couple of years due to those shifts in consumer demand. Um, you know, consumers have been branching out, trying new categories, and the producers on both sides of the fence have been have been trying to keep up and, and capture that incremental revenue opportunity. We've really seen it. Um, accelerate um, by the surge of off-premise demands during the pandemic. Um, we've seen consumers increasingly branch out from their traditional purchases and they're trying new brands and categories that they're seeing on the shelf, right, to bring premixed drinks into the home. Um, and this period of, of what well, can only be really described as consumer promiscuity has accelerated the growth of some of those newer categories like ready-to-drink cocktails, hard seltzers, and that has just brought along, you know, an increased opportunities for these kinds of partnerships across the alcoholic and, and non-alcoholic divide. That's exactly right, Claire. And beverage, uh, beverage brands have followed that consumer demand. And the pace of new brands entering categories like hard seltzers has been staggering. And that includes both alcoholic and non-alcoholic players, as you mentioned. Of course, one of the more notable entrants that helped kickstart this trend on the non-alc side was Coca-Cola. They announced a number of high-profile partnerships with producers on both flavored malt beverages, like hard seltzers, and ready-to-drink cocktails. One of the first announcements back in September of 2020, uh, Coke announced that it was partnering with Molson Coors to debut Topo Chico hard seltzer. I mean, the product was almost an immediate success showing that consumers are excited to see recognizable brands they already enjoy enter the RTE space. And Molson Coors has already announced that they'll be expanding distribution to all 50 states this year. 
Then in June, Coke expanded this partnership to include Simply Spiked Lemonades, which will be produced and marketed by Molson Coors that leverage Coke's Simply trademark. Yeah, and actually great um, point there, uh, Charlie, because since the launch, the Simply Spike Lemonade has had really astounding initial success. We were looking at some IRI data recently, and they've sold over 6 million cans in just five weeks, right? And they're now capturing, I think, 3.6% share of the national flavored malt beverage market in the first week of July alone. It's pretty cool. (laughs) Exactly. It's clear to see how successful some of these recent partnerships have been. Coke also announced several partnerships with Constellation Brands and Brown Foreman this year to produce ready-to-drink cocktails. Constellation will use Coke's Fresca Soda as a base ingredient for its new line of Fresca-mixed spirits-based RTDs. And Brown Foreman just announced plans to launch a Jack and Coke RTD featuring its Jack Daniels Whiskey and Coca-Cola, which will launch in Mexico later this year. And these, mo- these moves by Coca-Cola certainly support its efforts to become a more significant player in the BevAlk space and really evolve into a total beverage company beyond its core portfolio of CSDs, waters, teas, and sports drinks. And of course, if Coca-Cola is active, you can bet Pepti is going to be there as well. And so not to be outdone in uh, August of 2021, as we know, they they partnered uh, with Boston Beer Company to launch and distribute Mountain Dew Hard Seltzer, uh, one of my favorites. (laughs) Um, The the chairman and chief chief executive at the time, as you know, he also said that they – see this as playing a much larger role as PepsiCo playing a much larger role in the category. And they see the space as strategic, you know, quote, strategic and quote, very incremental quote unquote. So that, you know, it seems pretty clear that they are going to be, um, you know, in that space for a while, which has, which has recently been on a tear, but more, but, but very recently um, softened a bit. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And then in January of this year, Monster Beverage also acquired a Canarchy Craft Brewery and Collective for $330 million. And so there's just a ton of activity here, as we've pointed out, across the board, uh, you know, jumping that, that fence that was used to be a very clear dividing line. And now very clearly uh, that fence is gone and everyone's hopped over it. Hey, Rob, that's a good point. Like alcoholic beverage producers, they, they clearly have fared pretty well over the last few years, right? They've got strong demand for their products. They have reasonably high margins. So given that, like what is motivating them to explore expanding into these non-alcoholic categories? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think there's a, a, a few reasons for that. And I, I, th- I think they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're chasing the demand in areas where, where they have a right to win that doesn't necessarily have to involve alcohol. There's a lot of other assets at their, at their, disposers, at, at their disposal. And some of their um, you know, core categories, of course, have been under some, some pressure. Everyone knows that, that beer has been losing a you know, share of throat in the alcohol space to, you know, to spirits and wine uh, for, for, for a long, long, a long, long time. And there's also been, you know, some, uh, you know, if, if you're a wine producer, you're, you're experiencing some challenging uh, challenges, getting the, the, the younger consumers and the millennials. And that's been hit hard by uh, the tasting rooms being closed, right. For, for a couple of years. So a couple of periods of, of disruption where if you depended on, you know, that direct to consumer business as a winery, it's been really, really impacted with those, wi- uh, with those tasting rooms being, being closed. Um, but, but there, you know, so, so there's a lot of growth certainly to, 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 to be had out there and, and investors are, you know, ha- have an insatiable, uh, you know, um, d- demand for growth. And so the, the, the leadership of these, 
you know, alcohol companies are, are, are really starting to, to take notice and, and seeing that this is a very viable growth opportunities, uh, you know, for, for, for them to get, for them to go down. And we could, we could, we could, we could name a, you know, a number of examples, be it highball caffeinated seltzer or Tapa Chico spike salsers, or, you know, the list goes, goes on and on. There's just been a number of these new categories, which has attempted to ride the wave of that consumer demand for functional beverages of which, again, they have a strong asset base to, uh, to really be successful. And as consumers have started to expand their palates into more flavorful options, companies like AB InBev have been able to move to those spaces, those demand spaces, uh, you know, accordingly. And, and, and speaking of AB, I mean, they recently announced plans to launch a line of, of hard sodas in January uh, with, with the popular soft drink flavors like, you know, cas- you know classic cola, cherry cola, et cetera. And just earlier today, I saw the, the release of wine soda, uh, you know, from, from Constellation Brands, which is, you know, kind of, it's kind of like changing the dimension of the categories. We're talking here about, you know, alcohol and non-alcohol companies kind of, uh, you know, changing lines. That's an interesting example of a product kind of having alcohol, traditional wine and soda, non-alcohol being, being smashed together into a new offering for consumers. And so I think that's kind of where it all, that's kind of the answer is what they're, they're really hitting and meeting these consumer demand and, you know, they have the right to win and the assets to do so. That's right, Rob. And as Claire mentioned before, the driving factor behind many of these moves is, of course, increased growth. I mentioned Molson Coors earlier. I mean, they're a great example of a leading beer player who's branched out into other categories, similar to the AB InBev uh, one before. But Molson Coors, I mean, they've expanded their portfolio mostly through distribution to include several categories outside of malt beverages, including energy drinks, probiotic seltzers, coffees, RTD cocktails, and even spirits now with a Five Trails whiskey. Now, that expansion and shift in focus to a broader beverage portfolio was part of the reason Molson Coors changed its name uh, recently from Molson Coors Brewing Company to Molson Coors Beverage Company. I mean, that change alone tells you all you need to know about the recent expansion uh, across traditional ALK and non-ALK category lines. Yeah, I actually think there's another angle to this as well, which has been um, the influence of the distribution channels. So distributors have have been taking on waves of these new high growth products like hard salsas. Um, And it's interesting that like the beer producers, for example, like Molten Coors, like we mentioned, they've been realizing that they've been seeing an increasingly smaller portion of those distributors' portfolios and, and frankly, the distributors' attention as well. And so that dynamic is create pressure on them to roll out new products just so they can kind of claw back some share within their distribution partners. Um, and I think that's been, you know, really successful for them. They've obviously launched a whole bunch of new brands, uh, including hard held salsas um, over the years. But as as we mentioned, there's, there's, we start to see some of that softening starting to come through with Boston Beer Company and Truly. And, and I think the distributors are seeing that. Um, and so what's going to be interesting to see play out is, you know, as the demand starts to slow, the distributors probably going to start looking at this increasingly saturated space and start to pare down their long tail of, of SKUs because, frankly, they don't want to be left holding all the inventory risk at the end. Um, so interesting to see how that one plays out. Yeah. And, and Rob, you discussed the motivations for category expansion among, among alcoholic beverage producers. What about the driving factors behind the expansion on the non-alcoholic beverage side? Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of the, the, the same factors. And, and that would be, you know, again, trying to shift to, to, to new demand spaces with more attractive growth and margin profiles and, uh, you know, away from, um, you know, some, some that are under some pressure. And, and if on the non-alcohol side, one of, one of the biggest ones, of course, is 
carbonated soft drinks, which has been on a, you know, kind of a slow and, and, and steady, uh, you know, de- decline for, um, you know, for, for a while. And it's just a much different growth trajectory, uh, than energy drinks as an example, um, you know, which is, um, you know, almost all co-packed, you know, the big, you know, PepsiCo, uh, Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, you know, kind of, kind of missed that one, frankly, thought, it, you know, was a, a fad maybe back in the day and it's become a huge part of the market and they've now gotten, gotten into it, of course, in a, in, in, in a different, in, in a different way. Um, but learning their lesson from energy drinks, they don't want to miss the next, uh, you know, the next big wave like that, right. Of a, of a, of a large multi-billion dollar category, uh, with, with an attractive growth profile. And, and so as, you know, one example would be, uh, you know, Vital Coco. We're talking about one on the, the latest on the non-alcoholic side, you know, companies to announce a partnership with Diageo to produce a line of, of coconut waters, spikes with Captain Morgan's rum. I got to say, that sounds, uh, that sounds pretty good to me. I'll be looking forward to, to, having, that, to having that one on shelf. And that, that, that's expected to launch in, in 2023, uh, you know, produced and marketed by Diageo, but, but leveraging their, their existing dis- distribution network, of course. Got to agree with you. It sounds a pretty good one to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, Pepsi is a, is another good example of that, right? So they've been using the pandemic to sort of sh- shared and unload some of their, I suppose, unloved brands or lower growth categories. Like you talked about CSDs. I mean, Juice is a great example of one that they're backing away from. Um, I was involved in the, the the deal that they recently did where they sold Tropicana and Naked Juice um, over to PAI in private equity. Um, but on the flip side, they've then been shifting their portfolio, right, to some of, of those more what they see as profitable growth areas, um, as you said. And we mentioned earlier their partnership with with Boston Beer Company and, and the Hard Mountain Dew launch. And that's just a great way um, of, of capturing some of these growth areas, but leveraging existing brands. Um, so, and they can therefore do that without having to invest and, and launch a new brand. And there's also limited cannibalization on their core products. So it's, it's quite a nice approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pepsi's approach shows a category blurring isn't just driven by dynamics on the production side, but it's also about increased efficiencies and opportunities within distribution too. I mean, expanding into these new categories gives companies like Pepsi increased bottling clout nationally, and it really allows them to create deeper efficiencies and scale to boost margins. Pepsi also knows that distribution rates for BevElk are particularly valuable and that they have the scale to leverage these, their distribution network uh, to, for, to help launch these new product lines. I mean, the blue, ca- the blue cloud division they recently stood up enables Pepsi to act as a distributor in the U.S. three-tier system, which separates producers, distributors, and retailers, and it allows them to act as the primary distributor for that Mountain Dew hard seltzer. It's a tremendous undertaking, right? I mean, PepsiCo has the resources and capabilities you know, from strong balance sheet to warehouse network to DSD experience to make a successful entry. But, you know, these type of cross-category moves, uh, you know, are really important to the overall evolution of their businesses. I think another key factor is the, to these types of cross-category moves also give beverage companies new ways to connect with their consumers. Now, I was at BevNet Live in June, and Matt McLean of Uncle Matt's and Manisha Dabek of Ocean Spray we're both recalling how their companies were flooded with social media posts during the pandemic from consumers enjoying mixed cocktails featuring their products. And it really shows that consumers are already using these products to craft alcoholic beverages at home. But by formally entering the category, these beverage companies can better manage that engagement 
and drive greater consumer interest through things like line extensions, LTOs, et cetera. Yeah, Charlie, that's right. I mean, and, and, and these trends also extend beyond just non-alcoholic beverage companies. One, one of my more f- favorite recent examples is, you know, QSR chains, such as Arby's and Sonic, who I would have, you know, not thought many years ago w- w- would be entering the space, have partnered with, with Beval companies uh, to do so. And we were, we were doing a, a project in the grain neutral spirits industry and this Arby's thing came up in our research and we actually thought it was quite hilarious and tried to buy a bunch of Arby's. I mean, who buys Arby's vodka really, um, you know, for, for the team. Cause it was, we thought it was just kind of a, you know, interesting product and we couldn't get our hands on it. It's completely sold out. Apparently, apparently it's in the, the demand is great on stripping the, the, whatever kind of supply they ran on that, on that product. But, you know, it was just a really interesting example of, 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 something very creative. I mean, a, a new, new, new demand space with vodkas flavored to match their popular French fries, you know, and I'm not always the consumer. I have to keep that in mind, of course. Right. But an, a really innovative product like that was impossible, uh, you know, to get. And I, I certainly wouldn't have guessed that off the bat, but that certainly is the case. And, and it just kind of goes to show that, you know, consumers want new experience and even things like Arby's uh, ready to drink, uh, you know, you know, Arby's Bloody Mary, as an example, uh, is another one. And these recipes are, you know, they're not put together, they're not slapped together. I mean, this was actually really thoughtful. It was co-authored by celebrity chef Justin Thutherland, and, and, and it was to include the Arby's menu items, such as the sauce and the key ingredients. So a lot of work and thought went into it. And it sure seems like it, it worked, given I, I'm having trouble getting my, my hands on it. Rob, I thought thought uh, curly fry flavored vodka would be right up your alley. But you're right. I mean, Sonic is another example you mentioned there, which you know is traditionally well known for its beverage lineup. Uh, beverages are you know are about a quarter of its sales pre-pandemic. So, you know, they actually partnered with Oklahoma City's uh, Coop Ale Works and launched a, a line of hard seltzers back in May and. And that's been like a super success. It's one of the top selling um, FMBs, you know, only a year post-launch. And it's, I think it's rolled out to now almost 40 states um, nationwide. So, you know, a, a great, another example there. And hey, Charlie, I think you, you mentioned that you might have uh, one of those sonic hard seltzers with you, right? <laughs> that, that's exactly right, Claire. I, I thought it was fitting, given, given the topic today. Uh, yeah, no, I brought one of their cherry limeade hard seltzers. Uh, and I know those of you listening to the podcast can't see it, but I'm, I'm holding it up now here for, for the other people on the line. Um, but, but to me, really, it's a perfect symbol of just how exciting a time this is in beverages. I mean, the fact I can go to my local liquor store and purchase a 12-ounce skinny can of malted cherry limeade that carries a brand and signature flavor, as Claire mentioned, of a QSR chain for its drive throughs and indulgent menu items still, still just amazes me. And it gets me excited about where this continued innovation will take the industry. Yeah, but I think there's a point just as a watch out there that, you know, all of these CPGs and QSRs we've talked about, you know, we need to make sure that these products that they launch like strengthen their position um, and don't alienate their consumers or, or devalue their brands as they kind of go go wildly off track. So just to watch out there. Yeah, good point. Good point, Claire. And the, and the need for non-alcoholic beverage companies to avoid alienating their their core consumers. It, it seems like it's a tremendous growth opportunity, but there's also also some risk. I mean, so to that point, are there any challenges that they need to manage as they expand, as they expand and, and cross that line. Yeah, Rob, I, I think the other significant challenge for these companies is managing the regulatory environment, right? 
In the U.S., alcoholic beverage market is highly regulated. And even though the pandemic has helped accelerate a trend of picking away at some of those restrictions, it still remains one of the most regulated markets in the country. And non-alcoholic beverage companies like PepsiCo you know, must overcome and work around several regulatory hurdles to be successful in BevElk. One of the most important ones I thought it was helpful to call out is giving up marketing control to these new products to producers like Boston Beer Company, who they've partnered with. And to be compliant in a three-tier system, Pepsi, which is you know, acting as the distributor, as I mentioned, for that new blue cloud division that stood up, you know, they must focus on the distribution and merchandising, while the producer in Boston Beer is responsible for manufacturing and marketing. The brand teams at beverage companies like Pepsi have to be comfortable handing over the marketing reins to partners and hoping that the messaging and imagery conveyed in marketing collateral uh, is complementary to their brand identity and positioning on the non-ALK side. And on the distribution side, of course, Pepsi currently pays slotting fees to retailers for more favorable shelf space and positioning. But those types of fees are illegal, actually, for alcoholic beverages. So Pepsi will have to meaningfully distance itself from any perception of paying those types of similar fees within its blue cloud distribution. And, you know, the success overall of these expansions will really rely on the beverage companies being able to navigate these regulatory challenges, which will, of course, depend on how they decide to enter the BevElk space and where they choose to invest in the value chain. Mm, it sounds like non-alcoholic beverage companies have certainly taken a lot of, of steps and different paths to, to enter this the BevElk market. I mean, what, what do you think is driving that? We've mentioned a few, of course, already. But, you know, if you think about them again, you know, it, it appears that Coca-Cola has really gone the licensing route in order to create value by allowing other companies like Molson Coors and Constellation brands to produce the beverages and leverage you know, Coke's brands like Topo Chico and Fresca in those new product launches. Licensing allows companies like Coke to profit from the BevElk space without requiring it to devote significant corporate resources to it or potentially distracting it from its core portfolio and operations. The partners then you know, produce, market, and distribute those new products through their current three-tier distribution networks. Yeah, and so like Coke's obviously gone the, the licensing route and, and, and we talked about Pepsi with its JV with Boston Beer Company and, and Mountain Dew. So that's that's established its own distribution subsidiary, um, which kind of fits their strategy, right, and allows them uh, potentially to capture those scale bot benefits from its bottling operations and, and distribution networks. Um, the other example, I suppose, on the, is is uh, Monster, which Rob mentioned earlier, and, and that's taken a third path into the space through a full acquisition of uh, the Kanaki um, Craft Brewing Collective, so I suppose a full acquisition, it, it gives the monster more control, right, of how the brand is leveraged and, and the rollout of future pro products. Um, it also mitigates some of that regulatory complexity we we're just talking about. Um, so it doesn't have to set up its own BevAlk operations, it can just leverage those existing, you know, established distribution networks and value chains. So, you know, I suppose all in three very different approaches there and, and each of them have designed it to kind of maximize the potential benefits for, for each of their, their companies and, and sort of aligns to each of their corporate strategies. Mm -hmm. And those entry strategies require a degree of brand evolution too, right? And I know, you know, historically speaking, some beverage producers, especially in the Bev Elk side, have been slow to evolve. You know, Rob... Are all producers participating in this recent category blurring that we've been discussing? Um, or are any facing challenges you know, in rethinking their business models? 
Yeah, and I, I think um, most most folks are, are having to look at it. If they're not, they, they probably should. And as far as the the, the business model question, um, ap- absolutely. I mean, I, I would say that's one of the things that um, has been you know an area of, of heavy activity for us recently is is actually helping some of the al- you know some of the alcohol companies, bevel companies, act more like traditional non-alc CPG. Um, my general observation is I've seen in general things, you know, processes, people, processes, technology is not as tight. Um, there's, it helps when you have, you know, higher margins and, and, a you know, and, and a, and a very steady growth profile for the, for the most part, um, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to, to, to guard against some of those factors and, and just things aren't as well buttoned up as I've seen on my, on my CPG uh, you know, you know, brethren. And so they're, they recognize that and are trying to, ad- are trying to address that. And, and it's a lot of, um, you know, different areas, especially as you're talking about, you know, we said that Pepsi has got to be careful getting into the alcoholics. Well, it's the opposite for the alcohol guys, right? They're now figuring, Oh, I can, you know, there's a different dynamic when you're, when you're getting into the non-alc space, um, that, that wasn't there before and a new capability and really opportunity to form, uh, you know, new retail partnerships that, that you didn't have before. And I can also say that it's not, they're not just doing this by, you know, from scratch. I'm noticing a lot of my clients, um, you know, from the, you know, non-alc CPG side, all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're joining, um, you know, various alcohol companies. And so there's a lot of hiring going on, certainly at the, at the senior level of take, you know, CPG historically execs do bounce around a lot, but they're now moving, um, you know, again, those lines of blurred people, folks were typically alcohol or non-alcohol companies just from a career standpoint are now much more frequently jumping back and forth. And I think that's part of what is going on between the underlying dynamics of, um, of everything that we're, we're talking about here. And as far as some of those factors in particular that I, I would think that I would to, to push for, um, you know, the, the industry, um, you, you know, cert, certainly um, as the regulatory you know, environment for, for alcohol distribution and producers, uh, you know, have more access to, 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 to consumers, alcoholic beverage producers have had to update their go-to-market strategies like CPG brands, as, as, as I mentioned. Um, producers have realized tremendous opportunities for increased direct-to-consumer in particular, leading many to expand their e-commerce platform. So e-commerce and direct-to-consumer um, is another, you know, when you're in a three-tier system, that's not really an option. And now all of a sudden that that channel is. And so that's a really interesting, um, you know, growth opportunities. Now, now smaller producers that don't have the name recognition like a Molson Coors are forced more to rely on their narrative or have differentiated offerings to stand out on, you know, crowded online platforms such as Drizzly or Reserve Bar. Yeah. And, and I like that you mentioned uh, the whole D2C place. It's just, you know, a topic really close to my heart. Um, having spent a lot of time working on, on D2C um, strategies for, for CPG more widely across consumer and it's interesting to see that you know these um, these BevOut guys now are, are investing heavily in DTC platforms, and for the first time uh, are able to capture first party data, which you know honestly is is the holy grail of consumer. You know, before that, the three tier system just just pushed them several steps up the value train, but now these new sites are you know allowing them to interact directly with their and consumers they can control their brand experience better in a way they could never do that before um and as i said they 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 can capture some more of that data which you know allows them to do um you know real time analytics it it helps them drive consumer value um and and be able to slice dice and and react in in ways that you know 
consumer goods companies more widely have been doing for for a bit longer. And I think it's interesting to see, you know, they're they're starting to set up um, real time data analytics um, because a ton of data coming in, you need to very quickly be able to collate that and, and turn it into actionable insights. And I think that's going to be a challenge. Um, you know, they're starting to develop, you know, detailed dashboards, interactive reports, um, but that data will really help, you know, manage their growth strategies and increase, you know, organizational agility over time. So. You know, I, I see them as a little bit of a step behind just from an evolution perspective, um, but there's some great levers to be pulled there by by taking that D2C one-party, first-party data and and driving um, some insights and, and growth out of it. So exciting times. Uh, absolutely. Rob, given all this discussion about category lines blurring and evolutions of traditional business models, you know, what do you think are the strategic planning implications for beverage companies? Good question, Charlie. Um, you know, I think there's there's several strategic implications here to to, to keep in mind. I, th- I think the first one is don't stand still. Um, this is obviously a uh, you know a, a big a big movement in the industry, and um, you know you, you don't want to you don't want to miss out on the on the next wave of, of growth. And, and clearly, there's consumer interest here for for some innovation uh, and some frankly some fun new flavors that we've talked about here. This this conversation is. Is making me thirsty. Um, as the second thing is, as, as beverage companies look for for growth and to really widen their remit across alcohol and non-alcohol, make make sure that you don't do something that hurts your brand. Right? I mean, don't get you know, just make sure it resonates and that it's on strategy and that it's on brand with what you're trying to do, so you don't alienate your your core consumers. Of course. Thirdly, as evidenced by Pepsi and and Coca Cola. I think there's several potential approaches to, to distribution. You know, get, getting the, the distribution right is key. If you're, if, if you're, um, you know, non-alcohol, what's what's my muscle? How am I getting to all of those those channels within retail and and within within food service? And if I'm on the I'm on the alcohol side, um, you know, how am I manage, navigating the three tier system on and off and on and off pre- premise? And if if one of those areas is new to me, how am I going to get those capabilities to make that happen. There's acquisitions, there's strategic hiring, there's various ways that you can, uh, you can make that happen. And to that point, I mean, you know, partnerships are becoming a big, a big part and more speedy innovation. And I would just keep that in mind as an interesting way to supercharge your organization. You don't always have to, you know, build it with your R1 R and D. There's a lot of interest as we've seen of this, you know, blurring of the lines of partnering with other companies that might have different capabilities or innovation or distribution that you don't have that could be really interesting for the collective whole. Um, Direct to consumer is, is is one that we talked about uh, quite a bit. Big passion of, of Claire. I mean, this is a big a big growth channel uh, that's that's in its early stages still. You know, if you look at food and beverage compared to a lot of other industries out there, you know, we were single digit forever. We went to ten percent over the pandemic, but things like you know books and electronics and apparel are you know 40, 50, 60 percent um, you know e commerce or, or you know more broadly you know e com, not just direct to consumer, but there's a long, the point is there's a long runway for e-com and for direct to consumer in particular, you know, in these businesses and beverage companies are going to need to invest. Um, you're going to need to invest in new capabilities, be it analytics, be it, you know, sales, be it distribution, R and D marketing, et cetera, really across the board, um, you know, to, to make this happen and also to have, um, you know, make sure you have the right personnel and capabilities for the all important direct to consumer channel. There's just immense value in leveraging that first party data on direct to consumer to drive, consumer lifetime value, managing customer acquisition, and also sharing insights to water processes such as innovation. So 
No, there was a lot, Charlie. It was a pretty, um, they're, 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 in summary, I think there's, you know, there's a lot that beverage companies should be doing and, you know, don't miss out on this great opportunity. It's certainly exciting. We've seen a lot of successes out there you know, as, as we've talked about throughout this podcast. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Charlie, for, for your time today. I thought it was a great discussion. Thank you to all of our, of our listeners. I hope that the insights LEK brought to today were useful and helpful. And cheers. Thank you, our listeners, for joining us today at the Insight Exchange, presented by LEK Consulting. Links to resources mentioned in this podcast can be found in the show notes. Please subscribe or follow for future episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, we encourage you to submit your suggestions for future insights online at lek.com.